We have been trying hard to answer the question, what does spiritual maturity look like? And we've discussed the foundational dimension, which is intimacy with God. And we never get past that. We never grow past that. We always are focused on our relationship with God and growing it because everything else depends on that. And then out of that comes a sense of uh, the quality of integrity. I now lead one life, one integrated life that is based on my relationship with God and my responsiveness to God, my trust in God, my love affair that I have going with God, the one that he initiates. And that creates in me an integrity. It gives me the courage to make the right choices. Um, It's not moralism. It's not doing the right thing out of obligation. It comes out of a heartfelt response to God's call. I belong to him. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. And then it gets very real as we walk through our everyday life. And we think about whether or not we are healthy human beings. Created in the image of God, designed by God to have healthy relationships and this dimension of our lives that's so important and often not, we don't pay much attention to it, our emotion. Our emotion which often distorts other things. Our emotion that's either denied, and we can't do that. It, it, it wreaks havoc with us if we deny it, if we try to push it down. Or if it's simply expressed without any control over it. But to take this part of our lives and to acknowledge what it is and to be honest and real about that and say, Lord, you take it. Now, we need to discipline, we need to disciple our emotions to be emotionally healthy people. And then another dimension that is built upon all of this is, I'm calling it relational range. In other words, as you mature as a believer you begin to expand your range of relationships. Wow, okay, really? Um, Pretty comfortable where I am, thank you. Uh, Not so comfortable with those people over there. Um, Like being in church because everybody uh, agrees with me, um, except when I find out they don't sometimes. Uh, There's a lot of... uh, a lot of expectations that we have and a lot of uh, uh, sort of almost unspoken demands we make, I need to feel really comfortable to be in a relationship with you. I need to be in a very tight circle. Um, And yet the gospel, and especially the book of Acts, we're going to open it up, up to that in a moment, is talking about a constant pushing back of the boundaries. And that's uh, a way of determining spiritual maturity, a a, a factor in our own personal growth. So would you turn with me to Acts chapter 10, if you have a Bible. Um, We're going to uh, put it up on the screen as well. And this is a long passage. I don't know if that's a warning or an invitation, but it's a long passage. Earlier I was uh, teasing Mark, who chose the, the, the song we sang it a minute ago, Let Your Words Be Few. Was that for me, Mark? Well, Dr. Luke, when he wrote the book of Acts, his sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the account of the Acts of the Apostles, or more accurately, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, action-oriented. Um, there is a, uh, uh, an amazing movement here of the church from home base in Jerusalem 
ultimately way out there to places that are, well, you wouldn't believe it unless you read it because it wasn't going to happen unless God intervened. Because all of us as human beings naturally stay where we are comfortable, where we think we belong, where we don't have to stretch ourselves, where we understand the culture and the language and uh, the background, and we, we just, we're, we're just, it's, it's our place. These are our peeps, our people. So from, from Acts chapter 10, I'm going to read one section at a time. I want to look at this passage that talks about two individuals, Cornelius, the Roman soldier, and Peter, the Jewish fisherman. But it isn't just about these two individuals. It's about these individuals and their tribes and their circle of friends and their increasing circle of influence. There's a kind of collision that's being set up here, orchestrated by God, and they will never be the same. Cornelius and Peter. Well, isn't Peter already there? Isn't he already in the club? Uh, A lot has to happen inside the heart of Peter. There's a lot of growth that needs to take place there. And obviously Cornelius is at the edge of a brand new discovery. It's an exciting moment. So at the beginning of chapter 10, we read this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So let's start there, or let's stop there. Cornelius, a Roman soldier, a a Gentile, an outsider in the land of Israel. In fact, part of the occupying force. So not necessarily a welcomed outsider. An alien who alienated other people just because of the job that he was called to do. If you were Peter, if you were part of the Jewish church, which was exclusively at this point Jewish, it was monocultural. It was one ethnic group, and they were just getting started, and they had a very secure base inside of what was the larger institution of Judaism. They were a sect within Judaism, and they were Jewish, and all of the background was Jewish. It was Hebrew culture. It was Hebrew Bible. It was Hebrew prophets. There were those Gentiles who were interested in, who were intrigued by, ethical monotheism by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Cornelius apparently was one of those. He was interested. But he wasn't a proselyte. He didn't undergo circumcision. He wasn't part of the Jewish community. He was an outsider. And an outsider, he would always remain unless something happened. God is obviously coming after him because God so loves the world, including Cornelius. Um, who by his position would be an enemy of the chosen people. He was very much an outsider. What this passage begins to teach us, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that's open, 
is that God is already at work in places where you don't expect him to be. He is already at work in the hearts of people who are outsiders, who are perhaps believers or unbelievers in their own way, but haven't yet made the commitment that we would define as that dividing line between us and them. Theologians call this prevenient grace. Um, it's an odd term, but it describes something really beautiful and very powerful. God's seeking heart is out there ahead of us, ahead of us who would be or who should be his witnesses, out there working, working on dropping hints into the lives of people who know very little about him and leading them closer and closer to him. Even before they have a human witness, whether it be the witness of creation itself, whether it be in a dream or a vision, whether it be an intuition that's building inside of them, whether it be the fact that, in this case, Cornelius, you know, he's made in the image of God. And what a human being can do because we're made in the image of God, we're capable of beautiful things. We're also capable of awful things, obviously. But, but Cornelius was leaning into the call of God without necessarily knowing what that was all about. He was giving he was praying, not certain exactly who he was praying to because he'd heard rumors and he was responding to those. All of this was happening. All of this is a sign that God is at work in the hearts of people, Cornelius, for example, and others, his whole family. Before there's any official connection, before there's any formal membership, before there's any actual conversion and a formal welcoming into the family of God. He's spiritual without being religious. You've heard that so many times. And everybody, because God has placed an appetite in the heart of every single human being for God, there's a space, there's an empty space in us that cannot be filled with anybody but the one God has sent to us by Christ himself. There is a longing that can't quite be defined. He's spiritual. He's a seeker. He's kind of a secret seeker doesn't have any formal connection, you know, with the official representation of, of God's people. He's giving. That's sort of somehow something intuitively, I know I should be doing that. He probably doesn't understand fully why he's doing that, but he's acting out of some kind of prompting that God has put there. Again, God is at work in mysterious ways in people's lives. If you don't believe that, then you're kind of stuck. You'll come up with kind of a rigid position that this, this, this person that I'm interested in or care about are all those people who don't know Christ. It's all up to me. I have full responsibility, which tends to, le to lead us in the direction of manipulation or coercion, as if it's all about me. The, the Holy Spirit's at work out there ahead of you. The Holy Spirit is actually in charge of this whole enterprise. Now, he has a role for us, and there is a role for Peter, a role that Peter is not particularly eager to play. But God's grace is so great, it's so powerful, it's out there working in places that you wouldn't hardly imagine it could happen, in places that sometimes are very, very dark, in people that you wouldn't recognize as people who are, who are necessarily interested. He's giving, he's praying, he's longing, his hope, he's hoping, even though he has no formal connection to the institution inside of Judaism that represents God. So I have a question for you. Where is God at work out there? 
Do you see signs of him at work in the lives of people you know who are not, you would not call them Christians, and perhaps they are not? Do you see evidence of their interest, of their curiosity, of their conviction, of their uh, um, asking questions they don't yet have the answers to? Do you tend to hold them in contempt? Are you sort of disgusted by how they got it wrong? About how they're sort of walking inconsistently with the faith that you hold dearly? Do you sort of focus on what's missing? Or do you focus on what's possible? And do you believe that God can do some work inside a person's heart who is far, far, far away? And how many stories in the Bible are there of people just like Cornelius who were far away and God has found them somehow? And yes, he uses us, but it isn't up to us. It isn't all about us. God is at work in a larger way on this project. And if you believe that, it actually encourages us to say, I want to know where that is. I want to know where God is at work. And I want to open my eyes, and I want to I listen carefully to the heart of those around me and the questions they ask. And sometimes their questions come across in sort of rude and challenging ways. Sometimes the person who seems farthest away is actually the most interested because their anger, that, that passion, if it could be redirected. If we can use a kind of sanctified imagination and say, you know, I really love this guy, this lady, this person. I, I, I just want to imagine what it would be like if God got a hold of their life. What could they become? We need to use our imagination in that way. Yes, they need to make some steps. Some real change needs to happen in their life. We're not talking about offering approval and uh, you know, just sort of you know, not discerning, but we're talking about seeing the potential of what could happen if God got a hold of that person's life and see them perhaps in ways making a move and asking a question and being open to an opportunity for engagement if in fact you were open instead of just missing it completely, which is what often happens. Let's go to the next section, beginning with verse 9. So Cornelius has had this visitation. He was afraid, by the way, every time you see someone um, in Scripture and an angel or a word of the Lord or God in some manifestation shows up, it's, there's always fear. And Cornelius is afraid. And it's a fear that's immediately um, addressed. And uh, it's addressed in a way that shows the grace of God. God is to be taken seriously. We are to reverence him. He is powerful. But it turns out his power is extended to us in a saving way, in a gracious way. And Cornelius is about to discover that. Now we come to Peter. So you picture what's happening here. Cornelius is, is, is now been directed to send a representation, an entourage to meet with Peter, to find Peter and... Uh, and to make that connection. This is a very, very unlikely connection. This is a huge gap between Peter and Cornelius. They're never going to meet each other. And if they do, it's not going to go well. God has to intervene to make these connections work. And part of the problem, a huge part of the problem, is in Peter. In fact, if you read this objectively, Peter really is the biggest barrier. Does that mean I might be the biggest barrier to someone coming to Christ? Now, that's Scott, that thought horrifies me, that I could actually be in the way. 
instead of facilitating and inviting and engaging. So listen to this about Peter, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, that's the group that's being sent by Cornelius, Peter went up on the roof to pray. By the way, there's, there's just a sense of, 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 of aloofness there. Aloof on the roof. Um, Peter's kind of above it all. He's going away from people. To, you know, Peter likes to be alone um, from time to time, and that's a, that's a good thing, to go up on the roof to pray. And he became hungry while he was up there and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Okay, something's going on here. He saw heaven opened... And something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all, all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. This was a repulsive p- picture to a kosher Jew. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. And the voice often has to come to us a second time because we didn't hear it the first time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. We have the conversion of Cornelius. It's beginning. I hope that excites you when you think about someone actually making moves toward this relationship with God. Don't know the outcome yet, but... It's the right move going in the right direction. And now we have the beginning of the conversion of Peter. Well, I thought Peter was already converted. I thought he was a follower of Jesus. Well, he is. And wonderful things have happened in the life of Peter. And as far as he knows, he's holding nothing back. But he's wrong. Just like you're wrong to think that you don't have more to learn. And nothing, there is nothing you're holding back. And there are no barriers that you're putting up. But, but Peter believes he is doing all that God is calling him to do. He's making all the right moves. He's fulfilling all the requirements of being a good Christian, a good follower of Christ. But he cuts, God cuts across his path because, in fact, the conversion of Peter will take the overcoming of his racist resistance. We don't talk a lot about racism in the church, and I think that's pretty sad, at least not in the more conservative wing of the church. That's sort of a social justice issue. What does that have to do with, with us? We're concerned about salvation. That's a vertical relationship, and God says, of course it's vertical. Intimacy with God, that's the foundation of spiritual maturity. But that vertical immediately applies to the horizontal. Immediately and inevitably, inescapably applies to the horizontal, to all of our relationships and anything that's a barrier between us and another person that prevents us from loving that person as God calls us to prevents us from being a witness authentically and graciously to the love of God is a huge problem a huge problem and a huge compromise that God will not allow Peter to make. There is so much at stake here. That's why Luke spends all this verbiage in Acts chapter 10, virtually repeats it in Acts chapter 11, and then concludes it in Acts chapter 15. This is a key moment. It's a decisive moment. It's a blow against a barrier that has to come down. Maybe one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is because I grew up, I was raised racist. 
I grew up in an all-white community. As far as I knew, Asian people lived in Asia, where they were supposed to live. And Americans, meaning white Americans, lived in the U.S. And though I lived in Tucson, Arizona, um, and therefore you would think that with some proximity to Mexico, there might be some Hispanics around. Well, they were, but they were not in my community. They were, but they had service positions. And so they weren't like real people. They were people who served you, who took care of you, and stayed out of your way. I grew up in that environment. Um, my parents were unconscious racists. They weren't overt about it, but I still remember the day when a man down the, the street knocked on our door, and he presented my father with a petition to ensure that the house down the street was not going to be purchased by an African-American family. And I uh, just assumed that, of course, that was the way it was supposed to be. And sometimes that was baptized in religious language. That that's what God wanted. God wanted separation. He wanted separation between people. That God even had a hierarchy of those he preferred. That those who were on top and those who were supposed to be underneath and serve. The whole gospel argues against that. But my church that I went to never mentioned that. My church was pretty overtly racist. The pastor of my church, who was there 51 years as the pastor, by the way, 51 years, had a deal going with the ushers that if anybody of color came into our church, we had a church of 1,000 plus people, that the ushers would notify the pastor because the pastor every Sunday had an altar call to receive Christ, to be baptized, to become a member. And if that happened, he would not give the altar call. As far as I know, during all the years I was there, nobody ever dared to come in. And why would you come to our church? Because you would know very, very quickly. You would be met and greeted warmly at the door by people who would point you to a church that was more appropriate for you based on your background, based on your skin color, based on your race. In the deep folklore of that church, going back to the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan came to that church at Easter in their white robes, 200 of them. And it made the newspapers, it made headlines. That's where I grew up. The journey that I've taken, which is a very blessed journey, is from that place, living in a very exclusive environment, with all of those stereotypes running around in my head. And God had to put me through, blast me through wall after wall after wall. And it is a wonderful experience that allows me now to understand both overt and subtle racism and explain how the gospel addresses that. And it addresses it right here, again. Um, so I've been here over a year at GRX. That doesn't happen here, does it? There's no prejudice, prejudgment harbored in the hearts of any of us. Am I right? Can I move on then? Can I just assume that we're okay, that we're, we've escaped the sinful human nature that's in every one of us? And that we've escaped the conditioning that no matter who you are in whatever community, you can't possibly escape because it's there? I hear sometimes in our community... Have I earned the right to be the prophet after a year? Can I, can I, can I? 
I, I occasionally will hear that in this part of the world, Silicon Valley, South Bay, which I've learned a lot about in the last year, there are a lot of people of Indian extraction from India who are here. And there's kind of the assumption they would never come here. They would never be part of our church. It's sort of a benign, it's sort of an innocent and naive assumption that, of course, they wouldn't be interested. Of course, they come from a different tradition. Of course, they're automatically Hindu, and they wouldn't come, so we wouldn't expect that. I, I've heard that a few times about how many Indian folks are here, and that, of course, none of them are here. I was a guest speaker more than a year ago at a church nearby, Crosswalk, if you know that church, on Mary Avenue. And I delivered the message, and we also had communion like we're going to have today. And um, a whole clan of folks from India are part of that church. And as they come forward to receive communion in my line, I'm now breaking through another barrier myself. And here comes the grandmother of the clan, the matriarch of the clan, and she's in her sari, and she has the red dot in the middle of her forehead, and I serve her communion, and I'm undone by the experience. You mean God? You mean, you mean this dear woman? You mean, you mean this family? You mean, and of course there are millions of Christians in India, by the way. Well kept secret, I guess. And there are millions of Hindus who are thinking about and who are coming to and who are making the approach, especially from the underclass, to Christ, who is the great liberator, who is the one who upends those distinctions that are so hardened in Indian culture traditionally. Maybe we should rethink what we believe, what we assume. It may be exactly what is getting in the way of God's work and God's using you and me to reach people who are on the other side, whoever they might be. You know, there are so many examples. Um, do you have gay friends? Now, we can't talk about that in church, can we? What do we do with our friends who are part of a lifestyle that makes us uncomfortable, part of a lifestyle that might be distinctly unbiblical, in my experience, in my conversations, and I've had many deep conversations with people who are in that world and have that experience, there's a deep wound. It's almost always a deep wound. And uh, as I listen to this story and sort of lower my judgment and my need to fix everyone, which never was given to me as my responsibility, I begin to feel a compassion, that, and I know where that comes from. God is pouring it into my cold, empty heart. Give me a compassion for people who are praying like Cornelius prayed. Lord, help me. I, I don't know. My life's not working. And in private conversations, people saying, Doug, do you think I would ever choose this lifestyle? It, it, it's miserable. I wouldn't choose it. It's just where I am. It's who I am. And ultimately, I know that I can't change or rearrange and shouldn't even try to do that because that's what Christ does best. If Christ wants to change somebody's life, he is the one who can do it. He is the one who has the right to do it. He's the one who knows how to do it. If I can introduce someone to Christ, if I can help them believe that they could belong to him because I'm extending myself in friendship and putting up no barriers in front, 
Because I too am a sinner who needs forgiveness, who requires God to intervene in my life. If I can be that extension and that bridge, why wouldn't I do that for someone who is seeking, for someone who has the image of God imprinted on their heart, even if it's distorted, as it is in all of us? What about Muslims? Okay, now we're talking about hardcore, impossible-to-reach people. There's the Iranian Christian church not very far away from here. I've had a chance to get to know the folks who were there. Most of them are converted from Islam and are followers of Christ today. They were not Christian Persians. They were Muslims coming here, and they were either secular or religious, but they wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And so I'm... I'm all ears in this conversation. I said, well, how did you come to Christ? And the answer is so complicated. They said, someone loved us. Someone reached out to me in love. Not in judgment, not to correct me, because I wasn't open to that. But it's hard to resist the genuine love of someone who represents it as Jesus expressed it, who is, in fact, an extension of the life and love of Jesus into someone's life. And we write them off, even though God speaks to Muslim people in dreams and visions. We have friends who have told us about God's cutting across and drawing them in a different direction than the direction they've been going in. Do you believe that God can do that? And do you believe that he can use you And the question is this, where do you refuse to see God at work? And where do you refuse to join him, to go with him? Where do you resist God's call in your life? Make this friendship. Go across the street. Submerge your own discomfort. Ask the Spirit to fill your heart with the love of God. After the 89 earthquake, I volunteered with the Red Cross, and I was in Oakland, and uh, the big earthquake, and there were lots of people who were displaced. And I had, you know, a a great background in ministry by that time, and I had done youth ministry, and I was uh, a new pastor, and I said, Lord, I'm ready for anybody that walks into this door and wants to have a conversation with me, and, uh, you know, I'm going to help counsel them, and I'm going to help, you know, send them to resources. And I said, I'm ready to go here. I'm virtually unshockable. The first guy who walks in is a transvestite, a man dressed as a woman. Okay, first experience here. And God is watching me, I'm so because I said, I'm, I'm ready, God. And he said, no, you're not, but I'll send them anyway. And this is someone I love dearly. This man who's very much hurting standing in front of him. I want you to treat him. As you know, I want him treated as I treat you. I want you to treat him like that. And at the very end, after we had about a half an hour conversation, this man was so grateful for the little bit of help that I gave him that he comes at me to give me a hug. I don't know how to do this hug. I'm not comfortable with this. This violates every norm, every tradition, every fiber of my body to have that kind of connection at that moment. 
And, um, but God is watching me. And God empowered that embrace. Where do you resist? Where do you, where do you refuse? God is at work all over the place. He's doing much more than you know he is doing. And there are people out there who are much more interested in hearing about the love of God than you are in telling them and showing them. Peter must be converted. Christians must be converted again and again and again to become like the Christ we claim we follow. There's no compromise here. This is built on integrity. It's built on the truth of the gospel that says, the truth is God so loved the world, he sent his son into the world. And he's extending himself and offering life. And as he offers that life, and you and I hopefully are reflecting that offer to people. They see the change in us. They see the humility in us that we need this as much as they need it. They go to the source we're recommending to them. We're showing them. We're sharing our experience. And we entrust them into the loving hands of God. And the Holy Spirit who will change them. And whatever changes they need to make. It's not about you changing someone to make them more comfortable with you. That's not the point at all. You're going to have to deal with a diversity of people who have a lot of characteristics that might be uncomfortable to you. But God has his plan and his purpose. Do you trust him? If you don't, then you'll never get started. If you don't, then you're part of the problem. You're part of the problem. You're a big part of the problem. Don't ever say you represent Christ and then contradict his interest, his concern, his love. And if you sense you might be in danger of that, plead with him for forgiveness and ask him to refill you with a new vision of what could be as God gets involved in someone's life and gets involved in your transaction. We don't have time to finish this passage. I just stopped too long commenting for too long on the challenge that I believe we need to face. And I don't regret that. Because I know that I have been for too long myself part of the problem. I grew up on a trajectory that would have put me anywhere but here at GRX. Anywhere but at a gospel concert in Oakland last night. Anywhere but in Haiti, where I'll be going again in a few months. I have even grown to love white people. (laughs) Many of which irk me, because they're an awful lot like me. But this picture of the kingdom of God, which is the whole story of the book of Acts, as people come together, it starts in Jerusalem. Okay, well, it's, it's all cool because we're all from Jerusalem. Okay, let's go out into Judea. Oh, I don't know. Out in the burbs? And then Samaria, the ghetto. Oh, my gosh. And then kind of race back to Jerusalem. Little mission trip out to Samaria, then race back to Jerusalem because that's, that's home base. Then to Antioch in Syria, where the Christians are first called Christians. And now they're interfacing with the Gentiles big time. And then to 
Cyprus, the island. Oh, that's an interesting place. And then to what's modern-day Turkey, Galatia, and Ephesus. And then over to Greece, and Macedonia, and Corinth, and Athens, and Philippi, and Thessalonica. And then to Rome. Rome? Oh my gosh, that's like going to San Francisco. And then to Spain, that was Paul's ultimate you know, uh, destination, according to Romans. He wanted to get to Spain. That was the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what Jesus had said. I want you to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And you've got to expand your relational range to get there, which means you've got to get my heart. And your hardness has to be softened, and your judgments have to be suspended, and you have to trust me as I put you in very uncomfortable situations. Whether it's a difference in personality, or a difference in race, or a difference in class, or a difference in belief, a difference in lifestyle, God is big enough to handle those differences and to bridge those gaps and to make the changes, the transformations in the heart of Cornelius, the pagan, the perfect pagan, and Peter. who is Jewish to the core, because there's a higher agenda. There's a higher agenda than your family tradition and family values. There's a higher agenda, and it creates the family of God. And God gets to be the authority in this family. And there are missing members of this family. And you may not like them. You're going to come to love them. How's that for a transformation? You will. God will surprise you. He will shock you with the new friendships and the new opportunities. And sometimes it will take years. And sometimes it will happen instantly. Please go and read the full story from chapter 10. And, uh, and, and consider what this means now to you and to us. Let's pray.